The scripture reading for this Easter Sunday morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading together from Luke chapter 24, the verses 13 to 32. Luke chapter 24, the verses 13 to 32. And you will be able to find that on page 1,218 of your pew Bible. Luke 24, verse 13 to 32. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent." And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us when he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the saying, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know? It happens from time to time in Christian circles where the idea of knowledge somehow becomes a little bit ugly. It's the heart that's important. Why get students or our children, to memorize all these kinds of Bible texts while they're young? Why make them do devotions in the evening? Shouldn't these things just happen? Shouldn't they come from the heart? Shouldn't we be more interested in capturing our children's hearts? 
Maybe in part this is an understanding, a reflection of the world's understanding of love. A more emotion and feelings-based thing. The heart wants what the heart wants. Love is like an hourglass with the heart filling up as the brain empties. It's an overwhelming emotional high that takes you on that you can't stop. And you say, I can't help falling in love with you. It's bigger than you, they say. It's out of your control. It has nothing to do with the mind. It's acting on this kind of love alone that sadly leads to broken marriages and relationships in this world. Because if mere emotion doesn't mature into something bigger, you run into a lot of heartache when that emotion wears off. And all you see is the fact that you are in a relationship with another sinner. What you've actually fallen in love with is the idea of your own love. The emotional high. And when this is gone, what else is there to look for? Sometimes it's this attitude that people take into their relationship with God as well. They are more interested in what the heart feels than what the mind knows. However, they run into a very similar difficulty here as well because they are sinners as well. We're all sinners. And our emotions go up and down. Especially when life gets tough. More than that, If they're constantly just looking for the next spiritual high, then it's the spiritual high that they're loving. Not God. But it's not necessarily because they're impacted by the world's view of love either that people go in this direction. Sometimes it's a pendulum swing. It's possible to get so academic to study so much that we begin to study just for the sake of studying and then we lose sight of what we're looking at and it becomes a dry and dusty faith. But it's not a dry and dusty faith that we are given. You and I are given a living faith. A living faith that, ba- that is based on a living Lord. And it's this knowledge, this knowledge of our living Lord that engages both the mind and the heart, that gives us something outside of ourselves to anchor us, a firm foundation on which to love. This Easter Sunday, our Lord calls us to fix our eyes on him, abide in his truth, and love him with our heart, soul, and mind. And we'll see this under the following theme and points. Abide with me. First of all, sorrowing, then knowing, and last of all, loving. Now, as we come to our passage today, there's one verse that I want to focus on in particular. It's not the central passage in the, it's not the central verse in this passage, but it carries with it an important truth, and that's, Verse 29, we read there, But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. The men who are constraining him, that is Jesus, are 
two of Christ's disciples, two of Christ's followers. These men have spent the last while in Jerusalem, and it's been quite an emotional time for them. Things had started off, hopefully, so hopefully, a week before. It was around the time of the Passover, and as Jesus, his disciples, and all of the Jewish pilgrims from around the known world were gathering together for celebration, Christ had been welcomed into the city with songs of praises. People were happy. There was a sense of celebration in the air. They had welcomed Jesus into the city as the son of David. This was important. It meant that they were welcoming him into Jerusalem as the Messiah who was going to save Israel. In their minds, the son of David was going to establish himself as king, to be a king just like David himself. And emotions had been running high. People had visions of conquering the nations around, establishing peace and safety within the realm of Israel and expanding its borders, bringing back its former glory as a regional power, and perhaps going even beyond this. And the son of David would accomplish this. Of this they were certain. But these crowds had been working through the lens of their emotions alone. They didn't count on Jesus Christ as he actually was. You see, they only saw Christ, the Messiah, on the pages of Scripture that they wanted to see. They only saw the one that they wanted him to be. And so, they didn't have room for a Messiah of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. They didn't understand a Messiah who would suffer for his people. They didn't have room for one in their minds who would cry out while he was hanging in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Christ died at the hands of religious authorities, this seemed to be the end of them, of it for them. And they had all headed home in sadness. This was especially the case for these two disciples of Christ. They're busy traveling from Jerusalem to a nearby town named Emmaus. Emmaus was a town that was about 10 to 12 kilometers from Jerusalem. And average, average walking speed at a brisk pace, considering that that's about 5 kilometers an hour and they were walking through very hilly countryside, it, it would have quite possibly been a two and a half or three hour hike that they were on. Now, these two disciples don't seem to be among the original 12 that were called. The name of the one was Cleopas, and the other one renames unnamed, unnamed, but we do know from Acts 1 that there were other men who had stayed with Jesus in his ministry from the beginning and were quite closely connected to the members of his inner circle. They had even been close enough and connected enough to be there when the woman came back from the tomb telling the shocking news that the tomb was empty. Now it's these men that are quietly walking along this road, talking with each other and trying to process everything that's been going on. It's been deeply saddening for them. And it's confusing as well. And so they're reasoning with each other, it says. They're reasoning with each other. Why did Christ die? It seems that somebody robbed his tomb. 
Why was that necessary on top of everything else? Why did all this have to happen when it began in such a promising way? They are full of sorrow, having interpreted what happened through the lens of their hopes and dreams. But not God's word. And then Jesus Christ appears to them. He hides who he is from them so that they can't recognize him. This is divine intervention. They would have known who he was having spent much time as his disciples listening to him preach and teach and watching him heal. But it's not time for them to recognize him yet. First, he wants them to know, to understand. And this brings us to our second point. It's at this point that the significance of how the two disciples we are introduced to in our text respond to these words of Jesus. Remember what they said? In verse 29 we read them saying, Abide with us, for the day is far spent. Now remember that these men have been kept from recognizing Jesus. As far as they are concerned, he is a stranger to them. So keeping this fact in mind, what would be so persuasive that they want to introduce this man whom they only recently met into their home? Well, think about this. What is Christ talking about with them? They have been reasoning together. They have been speaking together, trying to make sense of things. And Christ has been explaining to them the answer to their questions. They, in their sorrow, had been asking about why all of this happened. They had been talking about it, and they were sad about it because it seemed to be such a waste. But he says, this wasn't a waste. This was meant to happen. And then beginning with Moses, which is to say the first five books of Moses, when people in the ancient world, they spoke about Moses, they weren't speaking necessarily about the man, but more often about the five books that he had written, the first five books of the Bible. Beginning with Moses, he goes on to explain how this was foretold and prophesied throughout Scripture. And it grips them. It grips them. They say, abide with us. Stay with us. We want to hear more. Why did this take hold of them? He was just teaching doctrine, wasn't he? He was just literally walking through the Bible book by book and explaining different things that were going on. Wasn't this a dry and dusty conversation? No, it wasn't. It held them so strongly that they didn't want to let him go. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to understand more. And why was that the case? Because it was real for them. 
their minds had just engaged with the facts. Everything started to fall into place, and now their hearts wanted to follow. You see, they had known the basic events that had happened to Christ, but they didn't know him yet as he wanted them to know him. They knew him as a teacher. They knew him as a potential king. But they didn't know him as their savior. But as he unfolded scriptures for them, beginning to explain from Genesis onwards how it was foretold that he would come to suffer and to die for their sins, their hearts, we read in verse 32, began to burn within them. This is the response to the word of God when you come face to face with it in its fullness. Christ doesn't sit in front of you begging you to come into the kingdom. He doesn't wish and hope that someone might possibly believe in him. Rather, he lays it out plainly. You have fallen into sin. I have come as your Savior. I have come to redeem you to God. And you reject that or you accept it. As our confessions point out in Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 3, God mercifully sends heralds of this most joyful message to whom he will and when he wills. With the first of these heralds or messengers being Christ himself. And then as article 4 goes on to point out, there's a twofold outcome. Either you believe it or you don't. It goes on to say, the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe this gospel, but those who receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered by him from the wrath of God and from destruction, and they are given eternal life. For these two men, the latter was true. Face to face with their Lord, as they saw what happened, and as he explained it, it became real for them. As the significance of his coming began to really dawn on them beyond just a king, beyond just as a good moral teacher, as it really began to dawn on them, they rejoiced. It burned within them. Their knowledge turned to love. They loved the message so much that they couldn't let the messenger go. Even though they did not yet know that he was Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our third point, loving. But that brings us to a problem, you might say. It doesn't always feel real for me. But beloved, are our feelings to be the judge here? What do we know? On this Easter Sunday morning, we look back in history and we know that the empty tomb is real. This is the most well-attested fact in ancient history. 
There is more in the way of eyewitness documents, more in the way of preserved written history on the empty tomb than any other fact in ancient history. The documents have been, that have been written are closer to the original source than almost any other document found in ancient history. There's more proof for the empty tomb than there is for the Gallic Wars of Julius Caesar. It's closer to the source than the writings of Josephus, than the writings of these respected ancient historians, Livy, Tacitus, Suetonius. But above all of that, we know it to be true because it's written in the word of God. Those who take issue with the historicity of the resurrection because it's miraculous and miracles do not line up with their views whereas these other historians don't deal with the miraculous, they reject it. But the fact of the matter is that as the canons of Dort pointed out, it is proclaimed to you today. Either you believe it as fact or you don't. And if you don't believe, the outcome is indeed a truly frightening one. But for those who do believe, not just resting on their feelings, how much their feelings go one way or another, but for those who do believe, Christ came down to earth. Christ died for me. Christ was more than a ruler. He was more than just a good teacher. I deserve nothing, yet God's own Son came down from heaven, died, and was raised again to bring me and all who believe to a new life. Those who receive and embrace this Savior Jesus Christ with this true and living faith are delivered from the wrath of God and are delivered from destruction. But you need to understand that it is Jesus Christ that you are looking for. You need to understand that, that your faith is anchored in something and someone outside of yourself and not just within yourself. This might be an odd thing to say, but that is the fact of the matter. It's Christ that you have to be looking for. Christ who walked along the road to Emmaus, opening the word. Not just some fairy tale to cheer you up when you are down. Not just some stories that have a good moral to make you a better person. Not just the king who will triumphantly lead you out of all of your earthly troubles into a victorious life so that you can claim victory over every single other earthly obstacle that comes your way. But Christ as your savior, as the one who abides in you, as the one who gives you assurance even in the face of certain death because you know what lies on the other side. This is the truth that he revealed to his people. This is the truth that he revealed to those two men as they walked along the road to Emmaus. 
This is the truth that lies outside of ourselves. As Hebrews calls it, the anchor of our souls. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is what we should hold to above and beyond even our own feelings. We already teach this to our children, don't we? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Our feelings go up and down. We can't always understand or interpret our circumstances any more than these disciples on the road to Emmaus. But to continue to find comfort and assurance in this as we grow to know his victory over death, to find comfort in the fact that I am included in his victory, we need to grow in spiritual maturity and in knowledge as we get older. We need to be confronted by him in his word and we need to see him as he is on every page of scripture. This is the foundation of our love. This is our hope. Jesus Christ has come and he has accomplished everything necessary for my salvation. And when we hold to this, then we too can confess with the hymn writer, abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Don't settle for loosely holding the word of God. Look to the one who doesn't change, whose comforts stay even as our evening song draws near and as life's little day ebbs to a close. Even as this radiant day turns into a glorious evening and the night draws near, as we reach the end of our earthly walk, this word will continue to burn in us. My Savior Jesus Christ has suffered has died and has been raised again. This is my only comfort in life and death. This is real. This gives me a foundation outside of myself for a love that's based on fact. Outside of myself, not just what's based in me, not just my emotions which go up and down, but fact. And as my eyes open from this little sleep that we call death, I also will live with my risen Savior for eternity. This isn't dry and dusty doctrine. This isn't mere words on a page. This is what Christ himself unfolded on the road to Emmaus. This is what Christ himself unfolds to us today. This is hope and life, life eternal. My life redeemed and restored by my risen Savior and Lord so that I can bring him the glory. This is what we confess. Amen.